Well, friends, uh, you may have said these words. If you haven't said them, you've certainly heard them. Uh, But uh, these are hopefully recalled to your mind as I read them. I take you to be my wedded wife or wedded husband to have and to hold from this day. There you go. Forward. For better or worse. For richer or in sickness and in to love and to cherish till death do us part. As God is my witness. We've heard those words. Many of us have said those words. And when we think about those things on the altar, I think a lot of us didn't realize how quickly for better or worse would come in our lives. I mean, it's like you say those words and then even at the reception, it's like you're already beginning to realize like, oh man, we're, we got some challenges ahead of us, right? You're on your way to the honeymoon and you're like, you're already in conflict with one another. When I think about marriage, I have an image that comes to mind. I want to share it with you. This is what I think of when it comes to marriage. It's not soda. You remember the, the, the project that you did when you were a kid and you, know, you take water and you put food coloring in it and, it, and then it makes this like really little cool like ocean looking deal. It, it, it's just the separation of oil and water. But that's what I think about. Like I look at my life and it's all blue and colorful and then this color right here is kind of bland. You know, like we have that in our relationships, right? Opposites, what? Attract. Opposites attract, right? So actually this is my wife. She's the spunky one. I'm the high maintenance one. I'm a little bit, I, I want to stay at home. She's like, let's go out, okay? And so that's, look, it's the opposite of track. Now look, this is what marriage looks like to me because it is two people distinctly different. They're diverse in a lot of ways, but the goal is at some point in our lives to become unified, right? And, and here's the deal. The only way this works is if I keep doing this. And so I'm going to preach a message, and I'm going to do this for the next 30 minutes. Y'all ready for that? I'm just kidding. I'm not. If that's going to stay mixed, you have to keep working at it. And I would just tell you that most marriages, you say the words for better or worse, or in sickness and health, till death do us part. We make these vows, but it's really easy that in a very quick amount of time, we stop doing the work. And we just kind of settle in on the relationship. And, and I would tell you, I don't know that our motivations are always wrong. I think it's life. And we have kids and families. And if not careful, our attention can just kind of alter and, and kind of verge off course a little bit. And then we look up one day and it just seems like these two different distinct people are living two distinct different lives. And at some point we just say, I, I don't know if I can stay in this for better or worse. I don't know if I can keep moving forward, and certainly not until death do us part. But today, I want to just help you realize that the Lord is calling us to display who He is, even through our marriage. Last week, we heard very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 that there is the directive, the design of this display of marriage. And the display of the marriage we talked about last week is that the gospel would be revealed, the good news of God revealed in our marriage. Matter of fact, there's a, a book uh, called Sacred Marriage. A guy named Gary Thomas wrote it. It's a fantastic book if you would like to go read it. But one of the quotes that he puts in there that when I read it initially struck me to my core was this. Gary Thomas said, what if God designed marriage to make us what? Holy. More than to make us happy. But that's not the way we learned it, right? Like we are two unique people. We're in love together. We can't wait to do life together. And we desire happiness. And it's not too long into our relationship that we realize that this is not happiness. This is not blissful. This is not even enjoyable. And then we realize like if we're going to continue, this is going to be work. And I would just tell you that if you look at it from the lens which Gary Thomas says That is that your marriage isn't about happiness, it's about holiness. It's about making us conform to the image of Christ, then that is a proper view. Matter of fact, I would say this, if marriage is to reflect the gospel, our marriage must reflect God. I'm going to put that for you up on the screen so you see that. So if your marriage is to reflect the good news of the gospel, it's the display to the world, then it's got to reflect the very nature of God. 
And so today, if I were to title my message, something would be a picture of Jesus and his bride. And it would be 10 qualities that Jesus emulates and he desires for you to have in your marriage and us to have in the local church. So maybe you're here like, well, I'm not married. You're single. Listen, if you're a part of the local church, these qualities are for you. You're like, I'm thinking about being a part of the local church. These qualities are for you. Every single one of them. So what I purposely did as I was preparing this week is just help you realize whether you're single, engaged, married, never going to be married, this message is for you. And there's a ton of things that we can learn from. And we're going to do so by looking at these 10 qualities this morning. And I'm going to go somewhat quickly. And so write as much as you can down. And then I purposely talk fast. that You'll have to go download the sermon notes in the Stone Point News tomorrow. That's why I do that. 1 Corinthians 13 is where I'm going to show you these qualities from. It's the love chapter, and I'm sure you've heard it before. And probably at the same wedding that you shared those vows with, or a similar one which you heard those vows, they also told you about the love chapter. And so we're just reading together, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to kind of dive into them and dissect it a bit. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says... Paul writing to the church of Corinth, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And then Paul says, Love is patient and, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is actually writing to the church of Corinth, and he is actually building upon a very large and lengthy segment of his letter in which he was writing to the church of Corinth about all of their gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how all of them have different gifts to use in the body. And then he talks about how those gifts are very similar to the human body. And he goes, at the end of the day, the human body needs the eye as much as it needs the ear, needs the mouth as much as it does the leg and the toes and the elbow. And he, Paul is just talking about how there is no part in the human body that's not important. He says the same thing. He goes, listen, the same is true for the church. He goes, every part matters and everybody should belong to the body because your, your part matters. And he's just talking about how we all have spiritual gifts. God has uniquely wired all of us to be a part of the local church, that all of us have something to offer. That's Paul's point. He then builds upon that. He goes, there are a lot of people within the local church that you're looking for these spectacular supernatural gifts. And then Paul highlights those. And the reason he does so is he goes, at the end of the day, you got to be careful that if you are looking for the supernatural things, the gifts to be used, then he goes, if, if you're not careful, that'll be the motivation of your heart. And when you do that, he goes, you will not possess the thing that you need most, which is love. Which is why Paul says very clearly, he goes, Listen, I, verse 1, I speak in the tongues of, if I speak in the uh, tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I happen to have a person in my house. His name is Caleb. Um, and he is our middle child. And Caleb lives his whole life like a clanging cymbal, okay? Now, what I mean by that is literally he goes around all day humming or carrying a beat everywhere he goes. We're in the car, and you can just hear him back in the back. And at the same time, he's... I mean, and it's everywhere we go, all day long. We're outside throwing the football, and he's like... I mean, all day. You don't believe me? Go find Caleb afterwards. Go, hey, dude, give me a beat and sing happy birthday at the same time. He'll give you some sort of beat. He's a guy, he can beatbox and doesn't even know it. Like, he's always doing that. Now, here's the deal. If, if he wasn't on beat, wouldn't that be annoying? I mean, parents, listen, even if they're on beat at times, it's a bit, you're like, can you just, can we just have some peace and quiet in our car? Like, can we just go somewhere without 
you fighting or us having to hear something? Any parent, like you can relate just a bit. Yes, okay. Paul's emphasis here is a little different. Basically, kids are getting nudged all over the place. It's like, yes, son, be quiet when we go home today, right? Uh, That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, Paul says, look, if you live your life and you're looking for the spectacular and all these things and you don't possess love, he goes, you are going to become annoying. That's what he's saying. If you desire to have this prophetic powers, you, you can move mountains by your faith. And he goes, but you don't possess the very aspect, the very nature of who God is in love. He goes, you, you'll, miss every, you'll miss everything. At the end of the day, Paul is riding to the church of Corinth. And he goes, listen, people on the planet don't need spiritual scholars. They don't need prophetic powers. They don't need, they need love. That's his point. It's not to say that those things didn't matter in the local church, but at the end of the day, when Jesus did a healing, it wasn't about physical needs as much as it was the love that met spiritual needs. And so Paul writes that, and he goes, look, the basis of our faith is love, in which these ten qualities all flow out of. And the first three, I'm going to give give them to you real quickly. Two of them I gave to you last week, and so you don't even have to write anything down. Just go listen to the message last week. Number one, the very number one quality is simply this, service. It's service. The second quality is submission. Those work together. The third quality is centered in this entire text that we just have started reading, and that's love. So let's dive into the third quality. And we see that that third quality is the one in which Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians 13. And when he just says, hey, look, if you have not love, you gain nothing. He's saying love is the fundamental thing that allows all of these qualities to flow out of. And so every quality that we discussed this morning, you just need to know all of them flow out of the very nature and essence of who God is as love. Now, what's interesting is this. Did y'all realize that love is a verb? Y'all ever heard the song, Love's a Verb? Yes? How many of y'all, y'all know that song, Love's a Verb? Yeah. So if you don't know that, you can go look it up on YouTube, you know, sing it to your wife later or whatever. I don't know. Love is a verb, but do you know that there is a particular case where love is not a verb and it's a noun? So love is a noun as well, but here's here's what you need to realize. Love is not a noun in your relationship to one another. Here's what I mean by that. Love is not a noun, meaning it's not something you fall in and out of. It's not like a rocking chair. Does that make sense? A rocking chair is a noun. So you go sit in the rocking chair, it's a person, place, or... Yeah, that's right, okay? So your love is not a person, place, or thing until your love is a person, place, or thing. But in your relationship with one another, it's not a person, place, or thing. It's a action. It's a verb. But let me just show you this, okay? Just a couple of things so you see this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, 9, and 10, I want you to see two forms of the word agape or Another word, agapeo. Agape is the noun form, which is the type of love that it is and who it flows from. Agapeo is the verb form. You see it 135 times in the New Testament and five times in these verses. But I want you to see it real quickly. So here it is. Anyone who does not love, agapeo, that's the verb form, does not know God because God is love. Noun form. You see that? So who is God? He is love. Verse 9, and this love of God, which is who he is, the noun form, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, noun form, not that we have loved God, verb form, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, you might ask the question, why are you giving us a lesson in nouns and verbs? And here's why. God is a person And his main characteristic outside of holiness is love. And through his holiness flows to us his love. And it demonstrated to us through a verb. I'll show you this. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Let's look at this. It simply says, but God shows. If you have the New American Standard Bible or another version, it might say God demonstrates. But he reflects. That's the verb. His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God, as a person, is love. That's who he is. But he demonstrates that love through the action of sending his son to emulate a perfect life and a sinner's death on the cross in our place. So he's crucified to display and ultimately give us the action form 
of a life of service and submission to give us love. You see that? That's who God is. That's what he's done, which means that's what he's calling us to do. And it is an active thing, which the reason I tell you that is because if not, if not active, then your life not active looks like this. And it's two people who you pay bills together. It's two people whom you raise kids together. But there's not an active pursuit. And if there's not an active pursuit, then there's a stagnancy. There's no vibrancy. There's no color. And the reason that I married my beautiful bride is because she gives me color. Like she's the one who adds to my life. God put her in my life to make sure I didn't become a hermit at home and just you know, die as an old man, you know? She is a blessing and she is pursuing me just as the Lord has pursued you. But it's work. And it's continually both of us as husbands and wives pursuing one another. Love is active. It's engaging. And that's what you have to realize. So husbands, the question that I'd ask you is, hey, how have you loved your wife lately? It's a great question that you could ask yourself if you're living in community with others. I mean, how are you loving your wife? And, and I hope that, it, you, that it's demonstrated in lots of different ways. And it could be little ways and large ways. It could be cleaning out the car. If you have kiddos, cleaning out the car is like you're a martyr. You're a saint. It could be fixing breakfast. It, it can be showering them with good gifts if that's something they love. At the end of the day, the most of it is a pursuit. And what's it a pursuit of? It's a pursuit of a person. And then the biggest deal, it's a pursuit of God himself. So that you are using your relationship to your bride, husbands, to make your wife more like Jesus Christ. It's leading them through the scriptures. It's reading good books together. It's gardening when gardening's not your thing. It's a pursuit. Ladies, how are you pursuing your husband? See, it's an active thing. And what's awesome about that is that we see it demonstrated us through our own God who pursues us endlessly. And so as we look at the rest of these qualities, think of them as they flow out of love because Paul tells us then what love is and how it's displayed. And so the number four quality is found in verse four where he just simply says love is patient. Now, I don't know about you, but if love is patient, then how much patience do you display in your relationship? In your marriage, is it lacking patience or is God an abundance of patience? But I also want to give some clarity as to what patience is and how you see patience displayed. Well, I would see this. God displays his patience even towards sinners. Let's read uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. You'll have to write it down, make a note. I'm sorry I go too fast, but here we go. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is love, and he's actively pursuing us, but as he's actively pursuing us, he's also patient. Why? How is he patient? He's patient because he doesn't answer the prayers of everybody on the earth. He doesn't answer even the prayers of all the martyrs that are in heaven. Because even the martyrs now are going, hey, when are you going to avenge your name? And the Lord is patient. Why? So that there are people who have time to repent. For instance, let me ask you this question. You've heard me ask this a number of times over the last 11 and a half years. But what if Jesus were to come back a decade ago? How many lives would have been missed out on? How many people would not have experienced the loving kindness of God? And so as we are praying, because we watch the daily news and we see the articles that are uh, coming through our Facebook feeds and various other platforms, we realize that our world is broken. We realize our world is in need. And, and all, all the time we say, Lord, would you come? But do you realize that every day that he doesn't, it's an act of patience towards sinners? And we know that in his sovereignty, he is patient for those that will repent. Which is the point, is that repentance is the goal. And we should be patient towards one another and give time for that. Matter of fact, Paul even tells us how we are to deal with difficult people. 
He's giving that uh, to the church of Thessalonica, and he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, I urge you, and he's urging the, the church of Thessalonica to deal with three different types of people. He says, I want you to admonish the idle. He goes, I want you to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. When he says admonish the idle, he goes, there are some that, that you ask them to go down the straight path, and they go, hey, I'm going to take the trail. I liken it to going skiing, Right? Most of us, we ski and you stay on the green. Then there's a few of us that are like, oh no, I'm going through the trees. Now, the reason that I don't like people going through the trees is because that's typically how our ski trip gets cut down by two days. <laughs> Make sense? So we end up and we're now in the hospital and now like our ski trip's over. Why? Because of one person who should have been admonished, they're the idol. That word idol really means unruly. But we're... We're patient with them all, the unruly. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted is the person who they've lost in some ways faith. They, they, they struggle to endure. They struggle to be optimistic about what the Lord is doing in their time. He says, encourage them. And he goes, and be patient with even the weak. Who's the weak? The weak is the new believer. It's, it's the one who they, like, they're just learning to walk. They're on the bunny slopes. He goes, be patient with them all. Now, the reason that I share that is because that's what it looks like to see the Lord's pursuit of you. He loves you. He demonstrates that by sending his son. He is patient with you, longing that you would come to know him, but he's also giving you time to be conformed to his image. Now, why is that practical to your marriage? It's because oftentimes we are not patient enough. Now, when I think about patience, I don't think the same thing you do. And I would just make this abundantly clear, and I'd write this down, and this is going to give you something to kind of think on. Like, you're going to have to chew on this one a bit. Patience does not mean passivity. Here's what we think patience is. We think patience is sit idly in our chair with our hands clasped in our lap, and we're just going to wait. We're going to wait. We're going to wait on our husband patiently for him to kind of turn. But listen, that I don't think is an accurate picture. Passivity means you don't move, like there's not an active pursuit. But that's not what we see in the scripture. When Jesus came to earth, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we know that Jesus said in himself that I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, have you ever played a game of hide and seek where there was no one who was seeking? <laughs> like you go and you hide and like you're there for like 30 minutes. You're finally, you're like, okay, I'm coming out. That's how I always win. I just wait them out. And they're finally going to show themselves, right? Because they're like, this is boring. You're like, hey, I gotcha. Yeah. That would be boring though, wouldn't it? That's not the goal here. The goal is not, hey, let's play a game of hide and seek and nobody seeks. The goal of the gospel displayed is, is patience. But a patience is pursuit in the waiting. It's forbearance in the bearing. Like it's, it's continuing going, okay, I'm pursuing. It's a love that outlasts while you wait for God to bring about repentance. It's praying and begging and pleading while God does the life changing. Patience means that there's a pursuit, but not a passivity to do nothing. It is a trusting that God will accomplish things in his timing and you are still active in what God's called you to do. That's the idea. Matter of fact, you see that even in this next quality. Look at verse four, it says love is patient and kind. Then it says love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant. When I look at that phrase right there, I see the word honor. I see honor. That's a quality that Jesus possessed and you and I need help to do as well. But what's interesting is you see this word as Paul writes to the church of Rome. In Romans chapter 12, Paul, he's going to talk about honor, but I want you to see what he leads out with. Look what he leads out with right here in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. You see that? So love is the, I mean, that's what's flowing out. Honor flows out of love. But look what it says then. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing what? Honor. And then look, look at 11. This is awesome. 
Pay attention to it. And don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. What's it saying? As you're waiting patiently, pursue your brother with love and honor. But you do that with zeal. Now, slothful in zeal means there's no zeal. It means you're a sloth, okay? Anybody ever seen a sloth? See how slow they move? Paul says, hey, don't be slothful in zeal. What is he saying? I think he's saying that love is an action. It's a verb. And even though you're patiently waiting, you are honoring your spouse all the time that you wait, which is a very difficult thing. When you are waiting for somebody's repentance and you're not seeing the action that you would like or potentially you think you deserve, to honor them. I mean, think about it. How many husbands or wives are slandered as a result of change not happening fast enough? And so when Paul says, hey, let your love be genuine, outdo one another, and not only showing brotherly affection, but ultimately honor, what he's saying is you passionately and purposely engage. He said, also make sure that you're not engaging in the wrong thing. Last week uh, in our journey group, after the message, we, we drew questions. Uh, and basically, there were you know, several questions. We all got one. And then after that time, we also then spent some time talking about the very questions that I posed to all of you last week. Now, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't lead last week, so I was kind of surprised that all of that that I just taught was right back at me. Like, so I'm not, I'm not just teaching, like literally in the moment, I'm having to apply it. And so that meant that Kelly and I were now sitting face to face, and I'm basically giving her permission to speak boldly into my life about areas that I need to improve. And then after we do that, we then have to share all the areas we need to improve with the rest of our group. And then after we do that, then we spend a couple of moments, and we then encourage one another as couples. And what's interesting is, is that where I was encouraged was not something necessarily that I saw, but then after I was sh- it was shared to me, I was like, oh my goodness, that is so true. And this is what a friend shared with me. He said, Brandon, when I see you in marriage, he said, I see some, some quality about you that I don't see in many people. And he said, it's honor. He goes, you honor your wife in two ways. And he said, number one, he goes, anytime that somebody comes, and he goes, and I've seen it a hundred times. Hey, Brandon, you want to go do this? Or, hey, Brandon, you available for this? He goes, your first response always is, hey, let me talk, let me talk to my wife, and I'll get back with you. He goes, you're always seeking to be on the same page with your bride. And I was like, dude, that is so true. I don't know, like, I didn't realize maybe that was living that out, but I'm like, that's my response. Like, it was... And you're like, oh, it's a cop-out. So you could, she could like give you plan B and you don't have to do plan A. No, no, no. Like it's a genuine, like, hey, I want to honor her. And he said, the second thing though is this. He goes, I've been countless times around you where you had an opportunity or you could have in any way said something about your wife. And he goes, and you don't. And I think that's the display here of honor. Guys, let me give you a practical, just real practical. You go dove hunting, or you go to the deer lease, or you're at the fire station. It's, it's not hopping into everybody else's conversation as in some ways they are jesting and in fun, maybe making fun of or saying something negative about their spouse. It's not an opportunity for you to hop in. Why? Because if you are honoring your bride the way that God intends you to, you don't negatively say something about her that you wouldn't say if she was right next to you. The point of honor is, is that we're always working together to be one. That is the key. Ladies, it's when you are out and you're enjoying dinner and a glass of wine with your friends. It's not an opportunity to slander your husband. It's not an opportunity to get caught up in girl talk for the sake of girl talk. Because here's the deal. Gossip always has a way of making you feel included. But it's not honoring. And friends, I would tell you that that applies to the way Christ has honored you, 
to the way we were to honor our spouse. And friends, can I just take that one more level for all of us to the church? Probably the most dishonoring thing that happens in all local church context is the dishonor that takes place among its members when it talks about others. And yes, you may feel included. And it may help you be a part of something for a little while. But I can tell you, it does not feel honoring when the gossip is about you and you're out of the circle. Friends, honoring one another is an, a- an attitude of saying, I'm not going to be self-seeking. I'm going to put others in front of myself, and I'm not going to belittle others at any point. If I don't have the courage to say something to my husband to his face, I shouldn't say it behind his back. If I don't have the courage to confront my bride on something, I shouldn't say it to someone else. It's true in the local church as well. Honor is a huge deal. And it goes on in verse 5 and says this, um, after you see love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant. Look at the latter part of verse 5 or the middle of it. It says it does not insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way. I think about this word, sacrifice. Sacrifice is a word that you could see multiple times. I think a great example of that is Philippians chapter 2. I'm not going to take you there. You can just make a note of it. It's a fantastic passage on sacrifice. Friends, I could give you 50 other passages on sacrifice. We want to talk about Jesus and his death and the way he demonstrates his love for us and that. All of these different things. But I'm going to choose this. I chose a specific one. And it seems a little awkward when I read it, but I want you to see it. Just stay, stay with me. I do have a thought process behind it. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 12 and 13. I think this is the picture of sacrifice in a way that you and I can apply it as we leave here today. Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And then he says something interesting in verse 13 that contextually I've never really put this together, but just as I was reading this week, I was like, oh wow, this is interesting to me. Jesus then says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. Now, anytime that Jesus has said this in other places, he's always talking about really salvation. You know, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And, you know, hey, the, the, the way to, to death is, is wide, and, and if you find it, the way to life is narrow, Right? But what's interesting is you look at the combination. Jesus says, hey, whatever you want others to do to you, hey, do to them. That's the law and the prophets. Then he goes on. He goes, and enter by the narrow gate. For the gate that's wide, hey, the way that's easy, it leads to death, destruction. Now, why does he say that? Why does he couple that thought together? And I think it implies in two ways. One, I do think it's true of salvation. But I also think that it's true because the ultimate picture of sacrifice is to do for others what you wish they would do for you. It is taking a back seat to yourself and letting someone else be first. And there's a lot of us in this room that we have been first all our lives. I mean, in some ways, it's who we are. We almost demand it. I'd call us high maintenance. Anybody in here like, I'm probably high maintenance. It's okay. I'm admitting it. Anybody else? You're like, I'm high maintenance. I got, there's three of us in here. Good. Hey, thank you for your honesty. Hey, the rest of you, the last week for Regen is tomorrow. I I would encourage you to come. It'd be life-changing. The reason I share that is this, is that sacrifice dies to your own needs every day. It literally asks the question, am I putting myself first or last? And listen, it can, it can be in interesting ways. I've shared before, and I'll share with you again. Like, I can literally look at a, two cups of coffee, and I can see one looks better than the other. Isn't that weird? Sick and twisted, right? And guess what? I want the best-looking one. And I would just be, I'm going to admit to you, 50% of the time, I take the one I want. And 50% of the time, I'm like, the Holy Spirit's going, nope, uh-uh, nope, nope. And I'm like... It's, it's a daily death, and friends, I don't die daily. And obviously, it goes to bigger issues, right? That's what it looks like. But what's interesting about this, the narrow gate is this. The reality is very few people are sacrificial like this. Most of us take the wide path. Most of us feed our own flesh. Most of us 
struggle to do what God desires us to do. And friends, that's true in, it's true in our marriage and it's true in the local church. See, when I see this active love that honors and cherishes and sacrifices, I can't help but see what God desires in marriage, but I can't also help but see what God desires in a local church. Like the reason that God has brought you into a local church is to be actively pursuing others the way that God would call you to pursue your spouse. And anything less than that, friends, is settling for less than what God designed for you in your life. And I don't say that to, to you know, razz on you. and I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm, I'm trying to help you realize that God was very clear as it relates to himself, marriage, and the local church. Look at the very last part of verse 5. It also says, and love is not irritable or resentful. When I think about irritable or resentful, I can't help but think about the word forgiveness. And when I think about the word forgiveness, there's one verse that always comes to mind for me, Ephesians 4.32. I want to show you verse 31 with it real quickly, but look at Ephesians 4, 31, 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. At the end of the day, forgiveness is, is also a pursuit. Forgiveness is something that you continue to offer to your spouse. Because they deserve it? No, not necessarily. But because Christ commands it. But here's what's interesting. When you see the idea of forgiveness, we are kind to one another. We're tenderhearted. We forgive as Christ forgave us. Forgiven people certainly do forgive. But can I tell you what makes forgiveness almost unresistible? Is when there's genuine repentance. So it's one thing for you to desire forgiveness for yourself. It's a whole nother thing when you desire forgiveness after you've genuinely turned from something. And see, I think what's interesting about this is that when we got the forgiveness of Christ, just catch me in my mind, make sure I'm on the same page. You might have to check me later. But the forgiveness we were, we were granted and ultimately we received from Christ happened at the transa- transaction of our repentance. Am I, is that right? For instance, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm always going to be this way. I just live in the dark, I'm so corrupt. There's, that's who we are. But at some point when we receive the forgiveness of God is when we said, Lord, I'm ready to come out from hiding. I'm ready to admit, believe, and trust that you are the Son of God. And the transaction of forgiveness then takes place. And so you might go, well, Jesus says to forgive 70 times 7. Absolutely, we have room in our hearts to continue the process of forgiving. Absolutely, we are to do that. But at the same time, for genuine forgiveness to transpire, to take place, you have to have genuine repentance. So you might ask the question, well, Brandon, why wasn't there restoration here? It's impossible to have restoration and it's impossible to have forgiveness if there is no genuine life change and turn from something that happened. So it's one thing to say, hey, I'm sorry that I hit my sister, which I hear that all the time. You know, Blakely comes crying. She's sad. You know, I mean, she's just bawling. I mean, of course, it's just my little girl. I'm like, hey, what's up, baby? Like, my brother hit me. You know, I'm like, okay, come on, buddy. Let's, let's go. So we go. And then, and then what? It's one thing to say, hey, I'm sorry. It's another thing to say, hey, will you forgive me for hitting you? Which here's the conversation that transpires in our house all the time. One, there's a difference between saying I'm sorry and seeking forgiveness. That's two totally different things. Just write that down. That's good. That's gold. (laughs) Here's the key, though. There's also a difference when you see forgiveness and repentance coupled together. If brother hits sister every day and continues to say, hey, will you forgive me? Is there any active change? No. That's, That's what we live in at our house. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm sorry, I did it again. No, at some point, there's got to be a genuine, heartfelt turn and go a different direction. That is what forgiveness offers. And forgiveness, as you patiently wait on a spouse, gives room for God's timing as you wait for repentance so that you can give the glory of God in your marriage full-heartedly towards forgiveness. And there's a lot of us in this room 
that you've experienced forgiveness in your marriage. And we're thankful for that. And we're thankful that God continues to encourage us to make room for forgiveness, even though we're oftentimes not in control of repentance. But I want you to hear this. Our church will always be about restoration, reconciliation, and an opportunity for those things to occur when there's repentance. There's always forgiveness on the part of who we are when there's genuine life change. And I hope you know that. This is a safe place. And friends, your marriage should be too. Paul continued on in verse 6. And he says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So wrongdoing is a lie. The truth is truth, right? So everybody say truth. truth. All right, wasn't everybody. Here we go. One, two, three. Truth. Okay, let's do it one more time because I'm still waiting on a handful of people. One, two, three. Truth. Truth. What is truth? Truth is what's true. Now, here's what's interesting. And I got to start wrapping this up. When you look at Jesus, we go, he's a God of love. And he's a God of grace. But I want you to realize that if you're looking at the view of Jesus as a God of love and grace alone, then you're missing who he is in his holiness. Because you cannot have the true Jesus without holiness and truth. Holiness says this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And Jesus is always setting the bar in the scriptures for here's what true is and I am the truth. And so when you look at Jesus, if you're looking at a Jesus who's always loving and always grateful and always accepts everybody back regardless of how they're living, then you've got an inaccurate view. And so what is truth? Truth is acknowledging the deep, dark things in our life and then calling us to move from those things. Jesus is called the embodiment of grace and truth. Look what John said, the apostle, the one that he loved most, right? John 1, 14, 16 and 17. I'm gonna show you three verses. It says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of, uh, uh, as of the only son from the father. He's full of grace and truth. See that? Full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So yes, the law has no grace. It has truth. But at the same time, we all typically lean towards wanting grace and love, and we don't like truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. Why does that matter? It's because oftentimes we struggle in our marriages because we are not honest with one another. We're not even true with our spouse about who we really are. We're not even honest about the things that are going on in our own heart and soul, but we desire for something to be happening in our marriage that resembles truth. The reality is, is when's the last time that you just said, God, will you examine me right here where I am? And you might even go, I don't even know how to do that. The best scripture to do that is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. It just says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It is coming before God and saying, God, would you help me to be honest with myself? If there's anything in my life that doesn't honor you, doesn't honor my marriage, doesn't honor my church, Lord, would you bring that up in me and help me to then deal with it? You want a fantastic conversation? And listen, I get it. Not everybody does. But you want a fantastic conversation in your marriage this week? Spend a few moments with the Lord asking that question and then bring that to the table over a breakfast or a dinner and say, hey, can I share some things that are going on in my heart that the Lord wants me to ask for help with? Man, what a blessing. Vulnerable, a little scary, yes. But at the end of the day, we all have to have relationships centered on truth. Why? Because truth leads to this. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Number 9 is the word endurance. Endurance. You know what endurance is? Endurance is lasting. It's long running. It's distances. It's not the sprint. It's the long haul. It's the long-term view. Which is why Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19. You wonder where Jesus stands on marriage. He tells you. He doesn't leave it up for debate or he's not disguised it in some subtle form or fashion. He says this in Matthew 19, 5 and 6. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
He answers the question on what marriage is. He answers the question around every question that you might have around it. And what does he say? He goes, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's why endurance is important. Because ultimately your marriage is an expression of what God did for you at salvation. See, you know what salvation is? Salvation is, is when a sinner admits who they are, broken, confused, in sin, turns to follow Jesus Christ, embraces the forgiveness that he offers, and then moves in that direction. Now, let me ask you a question. Maybe you have come to know the Lord, and maybe you know him, but you would be honest with yourself. In the dark portions of your heart, you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord. You know that. And you just know, like you've resisted his will in your life. In a lot of ways, you've kind of taken your own path. You're the skier that goes off the greens and into the woods, right? Like that's happened. What's interesting about that is that in the relationship that you have with God, he gives us the picture in marriage that he made a covenant promise with you that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that he has you in the palm of his hands. And yes, you may go rogue and you may go AWOL, but the picture of covenant marriage between you and God as a relationship with him is that he will never move. He, is, he never changes. Yes, you change with the seasons. Yes, you, you run and hide, and that's, but God continues to pursue, and he never moves. He says, come back. Friends, that's what the picture of covenant marriage is, and that's why endurance is a huge deal. When Jesus says, hey, let not man separate, what he's looking for is someone in a covenant marriage to say, I'm immovable. Yes, you can run like the prodigal son, but I'm going to be right here. Now, that almost seems a little far-fetched. Like, it almost seems kind of like a little bit ridiculous, honestly. But I do believe that's what God is really encouraging us to be about. He's saying, endure. Now, how do you endure? Well, you bear all things. You believe all things. When you believe all things, the idea is that you would believe the best about someone instead of the worst. Now, how often do you assume the worst? You get a phone call from a friend, you hadn't talked to him in a while, and you're like, oh man, there's something happening. And you always assume the worst. Anybody here? Just me? Okay. Assume the worst. What if you believe the best? What if you hoped in all things? You know, the deal is, is this, is that endurance is something that we don't practice as a culture. I'm going to say a couple quick things, and I'm going to wrap all this up. Endurance means that you don't bail when the going gets tough. I'm going to share something else. Some of you are going to watch, anybody going to watch an NFL game today, maybe? Nobody in here. Okay, yeah. All wait until tomorrow night. Gotcha. <laughs> the best NFL quarterbacks, and you might not know much about the quarterback. They're the ones who get the ball, and they're the ones who throw the ball. They sling it back and forth. Listen, the best ones... Do not bail when the heat comes. They take hits, they're in pain, and they do not run. The worst quarterbacks in the NFL, as soon as the pressure gets hot, they run. Listen, our culture has taught us to bail. Don't bail. Endure. Stay with it. Let me move that to the church. Had a guy come to me a second ago. He goes, Brandon, I need this message. He goes, I left my journey group a long time ago. And he goes, and I, I bailed. I bailed. He goes, I didn't share what was on my heart and mind. I didn't, I didn't have the hard conversation. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He goes, I'm going to go make it right. I said, well, I'm going I'm to text you this week. He goes, no, I'm going right now. And he went. And in the middle of services, he went. And he goes, this is why I bailed. And he, he didn't tell me the nature of it. He just told me like, hey, I bailed. Listen, friends, can I just tell you that we're always prompted to, to bail. Like we want to bail. Like the, the, the grass is always greener somewhere else. Listen, no, it's not. And then here's what I would tell you. Listen, if, you, if you're coming here, you just need to know what you're signing up for. It is not a perfect place. You get close to me and you're going to realize like he's an idiot. <laughs> Am I the best leader? Heck No. Do I always make the best choices as, as elders? Do, are, we, are we perfect? Not even close. Do we seek to honor the Lord through prayer and fasting and through the word of God? Yes. Is this a perfect place? No, it's not. It's full of broken people who our only hope is the redemption and the love and the care of God. 
But listen, I'll just tell you that if you're not careful, you'll live a life in a pattern of bailing on every time something goes wrong. And friends, you can't do that. Why? Because you're a picture of the gospel. You know what the gospel is? A God who never, ever, 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 ever bails on you. And he goes, I wish my people would resemble this, this quality, this character trait of endurance. Why? Why do you endure? Because of the 10th quality. And it says that love never ends. Love is eternal, friends. It's eternal. See, here's the reason that you need truth and love and a really good friend in your life to go, hey, can I tell you that this is something I see in you? And listen, I had a friend come to me recently and he said some of the most painful things to me. And I mean, it hurt. It hurt me bad. And I had two responses. I, I could have run for the hills. I could have bailed. I could have been like, you know what, dude? I'll, let me give you a piece of my mind. And listen, I just tell you, I'm wired that way. Like, I want to make a defense for me. Does it make sense? Anybody else? Like, you get back to the corner, and you're like, y'all want to bite back. That's me. I want to. But if you know that all of this is about a long-term, eternal view, and you believe Romans 8 is that God is using all things for the glory of those who love him to bring about good in our lives, then you know that even the words and the wounds of a friend are like balm to your soul. And yes, it was painful to hear a couple of the things he shared with me. But as I step back and I go, God, what do you want me to learn from what I heard? The Lord had a few things that like just through his word and through his people that I'm like, hey, here's some things I got to be paying attention to. These are things that I need to be aware of. And I'm thankful for that. And here's why. It's because God wants to use that to bring me about to his image. And the reason you need a local church and the reason you need truth and the reason you need marriage if you're in it, if you're single, the reason you need a good friend is because ultimately the goal of this life is not happiness, but it's holiness. And if the goal is holiness, then we're just being prepared for our ultimate marriage, which is with Jesus Christ himself. And here's the good news. Paul wrote to the church of Philippians, Philippians 1, he just says, hey, if God begins to work in you, he's going to carry it into completion. Now, here's good news, and it may be bad news. The good news is that God's going to bring completion in your life. Maybe the bad news is that if you're still breathing, it just means that God's not done with you, and you have plenty of work to do. And that's the way you ought to view your life. We're not ready. And so, God, would you get us there? And would you use any means for your glory and others' good to accomplish that purpose. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Father, I pray that you would use your word to change lives. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would help me to empty me and myself and in humility share the love of God that I've experienced with others. And Lord, the love of God does mean that I have to honestly reflect on several areas of my life. God, I need your help as much as anyone else does. But I pray that, Lord, we would indeed experience the freshness and the vibrancy of your spirit as you lead us to green pastures and still waters. We thank you for your, for your presence in our lives, and we thank you, Lord, that you lead us for your namesake. And so, God, would you help heal marriages? Would you help strengthen marriages? God, would you help heal and strengthen even our church Lord, would you help us to display who you are to others? In Jesus' name.